Welcome to Video Learning Lab, where we talk about learning and development and also what you can do to make your video content better. Today, I'm quite interested and excited because this is the first time that we have two guests on. We're joined today by Egla and Miles. Egla and Miles, welcome. Great to have you. Uh, if you could start off just by introducing yourselves and letting our listeners know a little bit about what you're about. Uh, we'll start off with you, Agla. Uh, well, hello. Uh, my name is Agla Venoskaita. I'm director of Nodes, uh, which is a learning innovation agency. And uh, right now, uh, as far as it relates to the product and why I'm here, um, I work with two types of clients. The first one, um, they're startups bringing their edtech products to market. So I work on uh, advising them on, on the learning aspect of these products. And uh, the other type of clients that I work with, uh, there are large organizations creating or scaling uh, their learning offering, op offerings, often uh, digitally enabled. So yeah, these worlds collide in, uh, in interesting ways and I hope to be able to talk about it today. Yeah, hi, I'm Miles Runham. So I work as a digital learning consultant uh, to various different organizations on the client side, mostly corporate, but not only corporate uh, learning organizations and also like with vendors and learning service providers as well, mostly on digital, digital strategy, technology, design, those kinds of themes. So similar to Egla, but perhaps less on the innovation side. I don't know. We'll see. But um, that's my guess. We'll see. I was talking to Egla a little while ago about how the two of you met, because I know that even though you're working in parallel, you you, uh, you have known each other for, for quite some time. I'm just w wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how the two of you met. I'll start. Yeah. So I, th I think it was probably April of 2020. I think it was April. And um, so this was in the first throes of COVID. Um, so I was, I think, sharing the sentiment of fear and panic, thinking that the sky was going to fall in on me, my family, uh, my health, my business, and, and uh, so it was, was sat at home kind of rocking in anxiety at that thought. And I thought, well, I'm, I can't be the only one who's thinking this. Uh, and you know, scrolling, doom scrolling through social media. And I thought on LinkedIn, I just put out a post to people like, look, is anybody out there want to just talk this through? How are you feeling? What's going on? Really, it was just a sort of, I suppose, a sort of gentle communal cry for help saying, let's have a conversation. And quite a few people said, yeah, I'm I'm up for that. I found fellow fellow warriors out there. And uh, Eglin was one of the people who, who joined that first conversation. I think it was April 2020. That's how, that's my guess. Yeah, I remember back then I hadn't seen uh, another person for two weeks. So that must have been like two weeks into lockdown. Uh, that Yeah, and I remember, like yeah, you said, that you were just rocking in anxiety. I think there were many of us rockers back in the day. So um, so yeah, that's, that's how we met in quite a, sort of a vulnerable environment at a, at a very disturbing time of our lives. So we've uh, known each other since. And and just like that, we've brought a new meaning to the word rockers. So already innovation is, is coming out of this conversation in a way that I'm very excited I mean, about. That's so I, and, uh, I, exactly. And, and, you know, networking is really important just for learning folks in general, you know, spreading best practices, finding folks who can inspire us and help drive the field forward. So I'm, I'm really f feeling fortunate to have both of you on here. Um, I think, you know, both of you just talked a little bit about your, your perspective and your expertise and kind of where you're coming from. I'm wondering if you could just start us off by talking, uh, giving us a look at the, at the uh, learning landscape and looking at where we currently are. I know that 
we're doing a little bit of soul searching in L&D. Uh, since we alluded to back in the pandemic, learning was thinking about how we design and deliver training over remote. And now we're kind of caught shifting two to three years forward. We're caught up in this next big tech shift with generative AI. And I, I'm in this kind of in-between space where we're trying to really figure out what our role is about. Can you um, tell what's what's uh, your, your slice of that learning world looking like right now? And we'll start with you, Miles. Yeah, I, I get. I don't know. It feels like, it feels like a very a sort of weighty warm up question. So, so I think I'll try and break it down. I, th I think when you asked, you know, what's working well, I think you know, perhaps unhelpfully, what's working well are the things that always work well. So for me, that's in a sort of clarity of purpose, identifying important problems to solve, you know, focusing on on practical value and outcomes. I think. Uh, one of the things I think that that works really well, and perhaps works best when when th when circumstances feel uncertain, is you know testing, start small, build, measure, learn, you know, and 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 work from there. I think that works well for maybe you know applying some of these potentially exciting and terrifying new technologies, but also just helps you understand what's what's useful, um, what's most useful, but also what you're capable of and what you and your organisation can do. So I think. You know, under any circumstances, those are some of the things I would fall back on. I think in terms of the sort of learning technology landscape, I find myself swinging from excitement to fear quite quickly at the moment. Actually, I think a lot of this is in response to, you know, to our, our collective uh, uh, response to, to chat GPT, but those, you know, those kind of tools uh, specifically. And I keep thinking, this is amazing. We're going to be able to do too much. And, and then also this is terrifying. Uh, um, you know, I, I worry most about an ocean of mediocrity coming from those tools, but maybe that's something that we'll we'll come back to. For sure. And I, I think when you say an ocean of mediocrity, I think generative AI tools allow us to uh, build things with less effort more easily, but that uh, just kind of adds to all the content that's already out there and more people will be producing. And so uh, I think I'm also choosing to highlight, you know, uh, doing what every organization has the capacity to do. Uh, you should really focus on what, what you're doing well at the moment before you start trying to innovate in, in things we don't quite yet understand. Agla, I'm wondering if you could tell us a, a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing. Uh, well, I largely agree with Miles, but I'm not going to go into commenting on that generative AI because I think that could be a different and, and separate conversation in and of itself. Uh, but at the uh -huh. uh, at, at this very high level, once the dust has settled, I don't think that much has changed. Um we are still so obviously we're seeing new technologies um, which are offering to do something something better something more effectively um, by something I mean learning um, but the same questions still remain uh, what are we using them for what are we trying to achieve and the sort of thinking about how do we put them together into a holistic solution rather than saying that okay if I if I deploy this technology, if I give my learners, users, employees access to this technology, is going to solve my engagement problem, my learning problem, skilling performance, whatever. Uh, these conversations we've been having for uh, for longest uh, for as long as I have been in this industry, and we are still we're still here. Is there anything particular that that you have been focused on recently with your clients, or or uh, or trends that you've seen uh, that? particularly ac across the learning landscape? Um, again, right now, as we're speaking, which is end of March, uh, because I'm sure that this is not going to age well <laughs> when it comes to generative <laughs> AI. Um, uh, 
one thing aside from that where everyone is trying to figure out how how generative AI might fit into their workflows, into their deliverables, into their outputs um, in the learning industry particularly. Aside from that, I'm seeing uh, a huge, if not push, then there is, um, I'd probably call it demand for um, collabor co collaboration, human, uh, like exchange of human knowledge, that sort of social learning, not necessarily uh, sometimes face-to-face, -face, but a lot of the times even how do we create these spaces uh, digitally so that we can scale this, so that we can be more inclusive. And uh, yeah, so I would say that communities are like right now, uh, from my vantage point, they're seeming to be quite a, quite a big thing. And uh, one thing that I'm wondering right now, whether once that ChatGPT, not Ch not just ChatGPT, but Generative AI um, produced contents, one, because it's so cheap, whether this is what people are going to be craving. So as Miles is saying, we can end up in a sea of mediocrity uh, and we may may not, but we'll see about that. But on the other end of a sea of mediocre digital content is meaningful connection with people. I'm curious. You know, we, we both of you definitely talked about the uh, the this the sea of mediocrity. I guess what is kind of what what is one of the reasons that that we're going to see such an uh, up jump in in this content that maybe is is not as useful or um, what's going to lead to to all of this con th this poorly designed content being made i i guess i suppose i'm i'm not i'm not predicting this sea of mediocrity i think for me this is it's like it's what i'm most anxious about in in a learning context anyway um, there's plenty of other things to you know to be exercised about but i think in a learning context uh, what what worries me is the i guess the content that you know the input content the content as training data for these systems that that if if the content was really interesting high quality universally and I think this is really cool and the content that's going to come back at you very simply put could be then very interesting but I worry that a lot of you know e-learning content or classical e-learning content and, and, um, and online learning content hasn't been that at that, that, that high level you know not all of it this is a generalization so that's the concern for me and then these tools will you know use that as their input so what they respond with uh, um, will, will they you know, then draw from that and and I worry that there's not going to be, it'll be harder to get something kind of new, different, interesting and useful from that base. I think that that's that's what I sort of, when I frown about these things, that's what I worry about, I think. Yeah, I, w I would probably summarize my concern in that uh, once it's easy to create content uh, with AI, then it's very tempting and very easy to outsource all content to AI. Uh, right now, probably every week, I'm seeing webinar after webinar of uh, vendors mm -hmm. talking about how, well, we had this tool, we had an LMS authoring tool, whatever, um, and now you can use it, but you're just not going to have to do anything. Uh, just, uh, you know, ge generate whatever content you need. And if, if you outsource um, content like that without actual human input, and, 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 and this is this kind of takes takes us back to to the product question and product product mindset is uh, if it's just about content if it's being content led uh then uh, where are we uh, gonna end up because right now there is so much content already even without ai so much low quality content in sitting in libraries that people are not engaging with uh, and that's not helpful in in any way for them so um uh, 
yeah, that's that's my concern. Yeah, and 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 since since you've taken us there, you know, I I I I know that one thing that that really kind of led me to to both of your uh, both of your work is this idea of bringing a product management mindset or product management skills to the learning world. And um, Miles, I, I I know most recently you posted about you know still harping on. Uh, still howling about product management, and so for our learning uh, for our learning audience, you know, for those who are are not as well versed in what that might mean, can you uh, kind of sum that up for us? What what is product management, and maybe how does it tie into learning and learning and development? I guess I, I see product management as a, as a I suppose as an approach uh, uh, as trying to identify you know product value from from the tools or the resources that, that you're using and that can be technology it could be content it could be uh, yeah, people um, conversation as Egler was saying I, I, and using three forms of insight from that so what I would say is you know a good product manager has a great technology understanding and bring technology insight to, to those you know to solving those valuable problems they have a good audience or user insight so they have some of that you know a, a sense of what's interesting and useful uh, for people and uh, they have a good business insight as well. So they know, you know, your business or your organization, what's most valuable, what are the important problems to solve. So it's really kind of triangulating those three sources of insight into into product value. And then there's all sorts of other behaviors and you know and tools and techniques to create that product value. But that's what I see for me, that's that's what that's why product management's important. And I guess, you know, the, the reason that I still howl about it is that I still worry that there's uh, 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 you know, learning folks digital learning folks are not as well versed in that uh, and organizations aren't applying as much as they could I guess that's why that's why I started howling in that blog post anyway it was a, it was a personal cry of frustration from from a, uh, you know 10 years of observation really you know I, I think that you know the, the skills that you mentioned of you know being data aware you know having a, a tech you know awareness of the technology and what those solutions can do I think those skills in and of themselves are, are not particularly new for uh for what a learning designer should be considering or what L&D folks should be considering i guess what's different about um what's different about a a product manager's uh approach to data or those tools that's uh, that's different from what you're seeing done now so i i think one of the the things that that's i i i've seen is that when for, for learning folks tend to think about learning as the product um, and I think learning isn't a product, you know, learning isn't something that you can make, uh, um, or, or produce, you know, learning is the outcome. So I think, I think the point is really to use those tools in a product context to, you know, tools for learning, I suppose is what tools or products for learning is what I think we should focus on rather than just the application of technology to surface content or the application of technology to, you know, produce access to, to assigned learning. I think that's where I see the opportunity is is to is to uh, uh, you bring that sensibility of problem solving to those tools and content rather than the, the management of platforms and the management of content on those platforms. Uh, yeah. So first, I would uh, probably when it comes to learning, rather than using the term product management, I prefer the term product mindset because for me, product management is a very specific, uh, it's a very specific process. It's a very specific role that someone, meaning the product manager performs. And usually, um, or at least often, 
it's used in contexts that are um, solving problems, perhaps in a more technically complex, sophisticated way. So um, I'm sort of losing the using the loser definition of uh, of what we're talking about, which is in in my mind product mindset, and uh, uh-huh. a product mindset, as 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 Miles has said, it's it's about um, uh, it's, it's an approach to uh, uh, to solving problems, and what it entails is this obsessive uh, focus on your end user, on what you're who they are, what they need, what problem you're solving for them and what that solution uh, would be and how, how are you going to create actual value um, for them. And uh, we can talk about why product management is so important in L&D and why, why it would be um, different before we go into, into the skills. Because again, the skills, like it's a, it's a bit of a combination of skills, mindsets, ways of, ways of working processes. So it's a, mm-hmm. I think it's a very complex question. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so I guess I, it's it's quite useful to uh, give you some context about how that that product mindset, how or just mindset in general, uh, differs between, say, a corporate learning department and an an edX startup. Because when you are uh, when you're creating something, a learning solution, program, whatever, uh, in your L and D department, the stakes are relatively low. Um, if uh, if people do not engage, if the solution falls flat, uh, yes, there is there is money lost. That that yes, there is time that people lose. The opportunity cost of them pretty much wasting wasting their time because they have been mandated to uh, to to go for that program uh, or course or whatever. But uh, other than that, it's not a catastrophe. Uh, but uh, when you're thinking about so. In, in the context of building a business, when you're building a startup uh, that that is around uh, an educational product, the stakes they could not be higher. The stake, everything, is at stake. Because if you fail, if you create something that people do not uh, do not use and do not uh, do not pay for, uh, then uh, you will run out of runway. If you don't have a product market fit, uh, you don't have a business. So what's at stake is your job, uh, your income. <laughs> Your life's dreams, uh, your colleagues, your 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 uh, um, colleagues, um, your colleagues' income, and ultimately your sanity. So uh, it's a very different environment, and I think this is one of the reasons that the mindset is different when you're in that kind of environment because the focus is uh, very much on on survival and creating exactly what your end users need. So keeping. Uh, your finger on the pulse at at all times. It's 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 really interesting to work in such environments, and you get a lot of insights that you do not get in corporate environments. So this this is just to frame uh, one of the the mindset bits that is pretty much the the incentives. One thing that product manager managers are especially good at is stakeholder management because it's one of these cursed professions where uh, you are almost in charge of everything, but you don't have any direct reports. You don't have any any real uh, r- real power in the hierarchy. Um, so, uh, and and if you think about the process about product uh, of of product development and and the sort of um, uh, pro- product management frameworks, they are very much about creating clarity and buy-in of all stakeholders uh, within the team across the business and. Uh, so, so definitely, this is something that is uh, is related, and this is, um, I guess, yeah. If if you think about it, when it comes to product, it's not about sort of adopting a, a process, a specific process for the sake of it. It is first of all adopting a process so that you you get deep knowledge of your 
end user. And then once you get, once you gather that, the next step is your internal communication um, so that you can deliver and execute. One, one of the things I think that's, that's sure. really helpful in that product mindset, uh, um, to, you know, to, to what Egla was saying, is that, that being clear about the problem you're going to solve or the value you're going to bring with that product is, is usually quite closely associated with being able to measure that benefit as well. So it's usually, you know, like your, your product isn't, isn't there to make people feel good or to learn stuff. It's there to, you know, to have a specific outcome and part of the design of the product is that it is is that you can gather the data as the product is used on you know to the that that tells you whether you're getting closer or not to, to meeting that goal i think that for me those are two of the most important elements of of the kind of product mindset um that i that i think are, it could be really powerful in a learning context as well it, and, and so uh, again i i think you alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation where it's you know doing more of the same um doing more of the same or, or what we know what works or w what our our role as as, as folks in L&D, what we're supposed to be tackling, you know, especially from a data perspective, as what are some of the the obstacles for L&D adopting kind of these mindsets? I guess, why is our industry in this position? A, a few thoughts on that is, um, well, first of all, as product mindset is a, by definition a different, different, different way of thinking and, and, and working. And in, in very practical ways, that means a few things. Uh, so first of all, there is an upfront cost uh, for discovery, which you have to become uh, comfortable with. Uh, and uh, even w once you invest the time and money, uh, there is no like quote unquote tangible um, deliverable there at the end of it. Their clarity is the deliverable. Um, so that's the first. Uh, then uh, it perhaps uh, requires different skills than what you currently have. Managing the process requires different skills than what you normally uh, have in L&D, or perhaps it's a question of whether L&D knows how to hire for, for such skills, uh, potentially. And I guess the, the last thing that comes to mind, again, as, as, as part of this, uh, this process, is that it requires a degree of comfort with, with ambiguity, um, meaning that you may not know what the end product, what the deliverable is going to be, and there is no um, like a real end to it. There is no deliver, like deliver and forget. There is end of a cycle. You release this product into the wild, and you uh, you you track the metrics. You speak to users. You collect feedback, and you iterate and iterate and iterate. So that shift up mindset is a, is a much more complex process than just creating something that's very tangible and has a very clear start and, and an end. So I, th I think because of, because of these, uh, these reasons, it's, quite, it's, it's not a very natural thing to, uh, uh, to choose as your way of working and as your approach in a, in a big organization, I would say. Yeah, I, I, think, I think one of the things that... that... That the L and D struggles with in this sort of transition to digital is is the notion of user choice as well. Is that you know L and D has come particularly learning technologies with a capital L and a capital T. You know the LMS was was built on the idea of assigning learning to someone who is then going to do that learning, whatever it looks like. And you know and then meanwhile the world is racing ahead to you know this sort of uh, um, all powerful user you know with many thousands of apps and options at our, at our fingertips you know and now attention and time is is hard to come by 
uh, you know, to your point earlier, Kevin, about marketing, um, I think that's a that's a real challenge as well, sort of flipping from the sense of assigning something to someone who is then going to do it. And by do it, we mean finish it or sit down and watch it and be part of it um, you know, to, a, to a place where we have to compete, you know, with someone drifting off to respond to a notification on their phone at any given moment. And then, you know, and, and, and the analysis and the data that supports the people who are fighting for that attention on the phone, I think, you know, that's, that's a kind of tough spot for, for learning technology managers to be in. It's a big transition, I think, but that's one of, that's one of the challenges to, to, you know, to adopting these ways of working, I think. What you've both shared is, you know, in addition to the urgency, part of this product mindset when it comes to learning and development is being able to put a price on the uh, the different stages of developing a, a particular piece of learning or developing uh, a solution to a particular problem where you talk about the price of discovery that's you know I, I know we think about the the you know who's funding our projects and we think about how stakeholders view the value of a learning intervention or uh, developing a particular solution we talk about that but you're talking more about the individual almost like what is the value of each stage of the process? What is it going to take to deliver on uh, a good discovery? What is it going to take to deliver on good development? And so I think that's already one way that we're, we're trying to parse apart this, this product mindset in learning and development. And then to what you mentioned, Miles, as well, is that idea of user choice and the fact that our, our, we can't really think about our audience as a captive audience anymore. It's, you know, we're competing with everything else that's out there. And so we have to think about how we design these uh, these solutions to compete uh, with everything else that's competing for our, for our learners' attention. Um, but 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 back to that question, Egla. I guess why? What's the reason that why now? Why is it important for learning folks to develop uh, uh, develop that product or shift towards this product mindset of thinking? So in uh, in short. Uh product uh, the product mindset is important in lmd because it produces waste um and it creates value but that's that's quite big so let me elaborate on that um lmd has an engagement problem uh not all lmd departments not in all companies but it is a problem that a lot of people rank quite high up in in, in any survey in in our industry and in my opinion um that problem comes from largely two places. First, uh, from a real lack of relevance of the LND offering, or from the perceived lack of relevance of the LND offering, which is a comes problem, which I'm not going to get into right now. But relevance is where it's at. And uh, creating solutions that people find irrelevant, it does three things. Uh, first, it obviously wastes money that, that you invest into creating and producing that solution. Um, second, it uh, wastes time of the people who are uh, actually spending spending their time uh, to do that course or program or, or whatever, and that can be converted readily into, into a monetar monetary loss. But most importantly, it's a waste of opportunity to actually make a difference. Um, to make a difference in someone's uh, work, in someone's career, in someone's life, by extension. And one thing that I feel that we don't appreciate enough in this industry is that we are quite lucky to have chosen an industry where we actually can help people 
self-actualize, reach their goals, uh, mm-hmm. what, or even financial goals, uh, which affects their lifestyle, affects uh, how they can take care of their family, how uh, they play, they can play any roles that 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 all of us have in our lives that that uh, that that are important to us. And uh, each learning that doesn't make a difference, each learning solution that doesn't make a difference, could have been a solution uh, uh, that did that that does. Uh, make a difference and gets people closer to uh, to their goals. And that's where the product mindset comes in. That if you start with how to make things relevant for that person, you inevitably have to explore what that person is, uh, what that person needs, who that person is, uh, and how to best solve the problem in a way that, that brings value to them. And that's how you reduce waste of money, time, and ultimately human capital. I guess I, I go back slightly to my answer when, when I, I arrived in L&D about 10 years ago from a product management environment, both, you know, in, in sort of learning products, the educational content products, and then also, you know, from, from prior to that in search engine industry. And I kind of arrived in L&D and I, I just thought, well, why aren't we doing, why aren't people doing product management? Every other walk of life and sector has been transformed by digital because they're applying product management product mindset as as Egler was describing to that to those problems they might be you know uh, uh, um, problems you know in retail or or you know could, could be anything and I I, I find so for, for me I think we if, if there is a problem with learning feeling it's special and different we need to we need to get over that and say no that you know that framing the problems in the right way uh, you know which is for, for, for the learner whoever they may be to, to you know to, to uh, uh, offer them something relevant for me, which is interesting and useful in a context that has that satisfies that source of funding, it feels like there here here is a way of working in the digital world that seems to work well for every industry, and I can't see why L and D would be different. So let's do it. That was where I started, sort of ten years ago, in that line of thought. And I think now, you know, the, the further on I get, just think it becomes more clear that we can and and could and should work in those ways. Both of you touch upon uh, th- this idea of, of framing the find either finding the right problem and then uh, Miles, you just talked about framing the problem correctly. I guess what's what can we do differently, or what needs what what's that shift that needs to happen? Is it that we're not framing our our problems correctly when we're bringing them back to the business? Is it that we're not identifying the right problems? What do you both see as um, as the change that 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 needs to happen in the way that we we talk about problem business problems in L&D. I think what one, one of the things that that I think is 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 an opportunity and I've seen really good product managers do this in in learning and elsewhere or or the, the application of that product mindset if they're not actually product managers is is from from a business perspective you get a you know, sort of sense of that, that here's what we need you to do or here's what we, here's the problem we want you to solve. I think bringing user or audience insight back to the business is really, really helpful. So here's what that problem looks like from the ground up. Here's what it looks like, you know, in the in the sales force, or here's what it looks like in you know on the factory floor, etc. So you can you can uh, uh, try to bring some of that user insight and experience to life for business stakeholders is is a really, really valuable a facet of product management behavior. And I think conversely framing a business challenge or a business need a business problem for the audience and the end users is equally important as well so i think 
what, what it's, it's just really hard to do it's not not like you know these people are falling from you know gr growing on trees but the ability to kind of translate and transcribe business need to audience and audience context to, to you know to, to business stakeholders is, is a really really valuable part of the equation one thing that that uh, i hear you talking about is as far as you know the way that we talk when we bring data to the conversation or we went when we bring data into uh, how we frame the business problem um it's choosing your i guess maybe it's the scope or the the, the scope into your context like you said is is the problem depending on the stakeholder is the problem being viewed from salesforce is it being viewed from uh the manufacturing plant floor and using that uh because because we have uh, using that to 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 frame uh you know your observation your insights and the data you're bringing to the problem because i think one of the things that i i know that i've seen folks struggle with is you know we have so much data to bring to the table whether that's interviews with particular stakeholders or that's the data you're bringing in from salesforce or that's um you know maybe you're you're seeing something you're seeing behaviors and actions uh, across the company, you're observing those and, and you're trying to bring all of those all together and make a case that uh, maybe isn't landing with um, the particular stakeholder that you're talking to. Is that uh, is that kind of what you're what you're thinking about, Miles, when you're when you're talking about um, bringing data to the conversation? Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I think and I suppose what you referred to there, Kevin, is probably you know one of the challenges we maybe have with data is we tend to think of it being, you know, sort of digital data um, or quantitative, but I think you're right. You've described other kinds of evidence maybe, you know, that, that are really, really helpful uh, to provide that context and direction. I think that is crucial. I remember when I was at the BBC, I worked with one product manager who was kind of famously difficult, but, but very successful. Uh, and that person wouldn't take, he, he, he wouldn't, do anything on his roadmap without without some form of evidence or data he said that's not getting on that's not getting on my backlog we're not prioritizing that unless we've got some evidence that this is a product improvement or a new feature that has value and one of the interesting things that that, that they would do then is say well let's let's go and find some data if we haven't got it let's experiment so we'll do like a maybe a paper, paper prototype or a, you know an a b test or whatever it might be to almost to create the data that helps you to take the decision I think that that for me was a really useful lesson and, and I think it's something that we really struggle with in learning you know it's often that sort of order taker metaphor where you know you just no one really knows if this is a good idea or not but someone shouts loudest and you you know and, and you go and make a program and don't really know how to measure it etc I think that sense of experimenting to create data that helps you take a decision is a really well for me that was a really useful um, idea that I hadn't come across before. Yeah, so I guess the first thing uh, here would be that it's not just about uh, quant quantitative data; it's also about uh, qualitative data. Speaking, getting the context from from uh, everyone involved. Um, so that's the first. And uh, another point I wanted to make about data is that it's not um, it's it's not just data. There's also this intuition that you have. And in my slice of the learning world. Um, when you're creating something that there is no real roadmap for, that there is no real uh, sort of uh, best practice on, on how to do it. For example, if it's a completely new technology or a completely new use of, of that technology, uh, having that, that 
intuition and obviously supported by data, supported by insights, evidence, and so on. But having that intuition about what might be, so if we need to make a leap, if we need to make a sort of a decision that we can test before we can gather any data, that intuition is very important before you even get to, to the data gathering. Um, yeah, and in, in my world, uh, yeah, obviously there is, there is, uh, there is data, uh, I think. When, when you are starting a business, when you're spinning up a product, uh, you're, you're collecting as many data points as, as, as you possibly can. Uh, the bigger uh, question is what questions you ask, because it's not just about having a data pool. It's, uh, it's about actually knowing what you're trying to get out of it, much like you would be preparing for, for an interview with, uh, with a user instead of just l letting them um, uh, speak about their... Uh, just with the free free form, um, yeah. So that that's that's one of the big things. Actually, um, structuring the the vision, the thinking, whatever uh, everyone around the table is trying to create into the questions we need to answer before we can get conviction in in the decision that we can uh, quickly build, that we can uh, deploy, test, and 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 see what happens. making sure that we have some good takeaways for folks. I know that there's some folks who are listening who, you know, they might be wanting to start to adopt this, be more like a product manager in their work who are in the L&D field. I'm curious, you know, for, from both of you and, you know, we'll, we'll start with you, Miles. What, what are some of the steps that they can take? I think, I suppose, you know, that there's a not wanting to be kind of reductive, but I, I think the idea of yeah, build, measure, learn is is now tried and tested, um, and you know build can mean many different things. That can be you know a prototype, it can be experiment. But I think one of the things that I really like and have always enjoyed about working with a product management mindset, whether you know it's with a product manager or not, is that these folks tend to want to go and do something, want to get, you know get something done, make a difference, make an impact. Um, and I, so I think that, that you know for me, build, measure, learn is the is the, is the, is the thing to but almost a really good start point. One of the things I think that's really interesting about that is, you know, the last word is learn. And for us in the learning industry, uh, that, that I've found as a sort of like a source of irony, but I don't mean this to be critical, is that, you know, digital organizations, product organizations are learning organizations because they try stuff and they figure it out, they fail and they, you know, they improve and they learn as they go. Um, and I think there's something kind of neat and tidy about the idea of build, measure, learn for L&D, really, which, which I, you know, I think we should embrace. And I think a lot of people do, really, but they might not call it that. There's a bit in there about a about experimentation playing a huge role in, in what you're discussing, where it's, uh, you know, rather than plow headfirst into a, a big intervention, maybe it's better to run, based off the data, a small test and get one thing right as opposed to trying to figure out what, what, what is going to be the big solution that saves, you know, tackles three, three different problems. Let's, let's solve this, see what steps we can take to solve it first. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I, it's difficult because I think, you know, the L&D traditionally has been project and program focused, you know, where you gather all your requirements, you lay out your plan carefully and you say, you know, here's the next six months and here's when we finish. Uh, um, but, so this is like slightly, you know, it does require you to abandon that reflex a little bit. But I think it's, you know, it's just sort of a, it, it's very practical and pragmatic, I think, as well, which is attractive to me. 
And Egla, is there um, what are what are some of the skills that that you think folks need to either start uh, re- researching more about, or maybe one step that they can practice, uh, they can start in their practice starting tomorrow? I'm gonna give you exactly one step, which is uh, speak with your end users and be genuinely curious about them, and don't be satisfied with getting. Uh, only secondhand accounts. For example, their line managers telling you what the reports, uh, what the reports need, uh, which is a great data point. It's it's great for context, but it cannot be your only source of information about your end users. And the reason I'm I'm I'm, I'm saying this is that you will be surprised by what you hear and what you uncover, even from very short conversations. I remember. At one time, uh, I was working on um, on a program with senior managers, and it was really, really difficult to get time in their calendar to to, to ask them about anything. Um, and uh, what I said is that can I get 15 minutes from five people? Literally, I, I can join them for for a sandwich uh, over the lunch break. Just give me 15 minutes. I'm going to ask them three questions, and that was enough for me to gain really valuable insights into that that actually uh, influenced the product quite 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 a lot and the thing is the reason why it's the only the only like the first step that i am suggesting people do and pretty much like start with that is that once you know what problems your people are facing once you know that you cannot unknow it and the rest kind of solves solves itself i have so many more questions for for both of you but it's been so wonderful to pick your brains and we got some uh, really juicy tidbits that we'll be we will be shouting out in the show notes as well. And uh, if you want to hear more from Miles and and Egla, we'll be linking uh, both the blog and and uh, Egla's work as well uh, in the show notes. So uh, be sure to reach out to them. And uh, I realize I just offered both of your time up to uh, our our listeners, but I hope you don't mind. But otherwise, it's been a, a pleasure to speak with you both, and thank you both for coming on. I couldn't can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.